Good afternoon and welcome to the All Souls Forum. Today's presentation is entitled Environmental Ethics and is presented by Professor Ian Smith, the Chair of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Washburn University. It was recorded at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Lawrence on April 30th, 2023. Good morning. Well, I could have stood and lit all those candles with my joy this morning to be here with the honor of introducing my son to you, tell you a little bit about him before he speaks. Three weeks ago, our program featured Cheryl Thomas of Global Rights for Women. Last week evolved into a discussion we could call Global Rights for All. As we recognize the 53rd annual Earth Day, Global Rights for Mother Earth comes to mind, as does Think Globally, Act Locally, also from the 70s, as is Ian. And so it is timely that I introduce today's speaker, my son, Professor Ian Smith, co-editor and contributor in the recent book, Environmental Ethics in the Midwest. In anticipation of this morning, I reflected that our family's heritage includes a sense of belonging with nature, a sense nurtured by time spent in places apart from civilization, especially when young, such that multiple generations value Mother Earth, a faded copy of a column from the Craig Colorado Daily Press titled, quote, everyone needs a place apart, end quote, describes the author's childhood Connecticut Beach and his children's spot in central Montana as places that give a sense of being, quote, hitched up to this universe, that everything is hitched up, all of us finding our way, end quote. Perhaps our family's annual pilgrimages to our relative's ranch in remote Colorado, coupled with Ian's dad's connections with the great outdoors, provided settings for young Ian to explore places apart, influencing his sense of being connected, hitched to the whole. And then in 1989, when the matter of global climate change was beginning to pervade the consciousness of some people, Ian began to address the issue through his middle school's mentorship program. He and another student teamed up under the guidance of mentor Bob Child, a prominent regional politician. The three of them crafted the enacted legislation that directed local recycling, incentives for the use of energy-saving devices in homes, and the requirement that local rental cars be free of ozone-depleting CFCs. When Dr. Noel Brown, then director of the North American Office of the United Nations Environmental Program, heard about their successful efforts, he presented them with a leadership award for creative initiatives in the cause of the environment at 14 years old. At the time, Ian felt that they were doing the right thing and that it was wrong to emit greenhouse gases at excessive levels, but 
he recognized the lack of how to articulate why it was wrong to pollute at such levels and why he believed it was right to change behaviors accordingly. As a dedicated activist, over time he chose studies that could provide the how-to. An undergrad BA, a master's degree in philosophy, and PhD in philosophy with an emphasis on environmental ethics. I speak for Ian's whole family when I say that it's a joy to witness this long road, your flourishing marriage and fatherhood, and most recently celebrate your status as full professor at Washburn University. Interesting that my dad, your grandpa Ped, inspired you along your academic path and was a guest lecturer at Washburn School of Law in the 1980s. And now here you are. Of the book, Environmental Ethics in the Midwest, a reviewer writes, this fascinating collection of essays brings to life the complex questions that the US Midwest raises for environmental ethics. The original interdisciplinary contributions take the reader on a journey through forests and feedlots, rivers and restorations, cities and classrooms, challenging us to see the often neglected Midwest as in fact laying at the heart of 21st century US environmental concerns, end quote. So please join me in welcoming Ian, and after the program, join us in Founders Hall for more conversation and muffins. <laughs> Good morning, can you hear me? Yes. All right. <clears throat> well, thank you all for coming out today. I really appreciate it. I know it's early on a Sunday morning and before the, the service. And thank you too for all those of you in Zoom land. I recognize some of you, wherever the camera is, <laughs> um, uh, family members and some friends and some colleagues. So I really appreciate you coming out here. So what I wanna do this morning is just introduce you to uh, this new volume that Matt Fricani and I put together. Um, and what I first want to do is give you some historical context, kind of like what motivated us to do this. So I'll, I'll start with that. Okay. So for reasons of historical accident, the New England East and Mountain West figure large in the, in the American environmental imagination. <clears throat> By the mid-19th century, the New England transcendentalists, I assume most of you are familiar with Emerson and Thoreau, uh, they pushed the concept and value of nature into the intellectual spotlight. A few decades later, battles waged by pioneer conservationists like Gifford Pinchot and John Muir in the West led to numerous foundational environmental laws and institutions of American environmental governance and politics. 
we've all heard of the Sierra Club, one of the country's first societies devoted to environmental causes, the Sierra Club, is named to honor the Sierra Mountains and remains one of the most influential environmental organizations in the United States, if not the world. So when Americans think about environmental issues, environmental ethics, environmental values, they think about where I'm from, the American uh, West, and they think about the coasts, right? They think about New England, they think about California. In fact, uh, most environmental issues and values that get traction in the American national media, in books on environmental ethics, academic books, in movies focused on environmental issues, etc., focus on issues in the West and East Coast regions. At the same time, collaborations between disciplinary ethicists and non-ethicists to address specific environmental problems in specific places remain rare, even while the interdisciplinary nature of environmental ethics is widely acknowledged. Bucking this history, this volume focuses on environmental issues as they manifest in the American Midwest. Of course, these issues can spring up in other parts of the world, but we really wanted to focus on some of the central issues in the American Midwest, like the Flint water crisis, right, in Flint, Michigan. That's a good example. Made up of entirely newly, sorry, made up of newly commissioned essays, the volume includes work by three collaborative interdisciplinary teams, as well as scholars having diverse disciplinary and subdisciplinary backgrounds. So what I want to do is I want to talk about each of the chapters and just introduce you to them. I was here at uh, UUCL a couple of weeks ago, and I think that someone mentioned Wendell Berry. Is that right? Does that sound right? Okay. So the very first chapter on, in, the, in the volume talks about Midwest Stoicism with a capital S, Agrarianism and environmental virtue ethics. The, the, the chapter author was William Stevens uh, from a university in Nebraska. <clears throat> and he talks about Barry as being a, a perfect example of someone who is a Midwest agrarian uh, follower. So I'm going to read just a small section of, of this chapter. One of the questions in the very first chapter is, what is the Midwest? <laughs> it's not like super obvious exactly what the boundaries are. So the opening section of this chapter talks about uh, what the Midwest is. Um, <clears throat> the great eight Midwestern states, four are contiguous with Kentucky. Given its geography and history, the northern tier of Kentucky along the Ohio River can be regarded as at least fuzzily Midwestern. This area includes Henry County, home of the acclaimed farmer, author, cultural critic, and environmental activist, Wendell Berry. Berry quotes from the fourth of Virgil's Georgics to tap into the ancient Roman Stoic agrarian theme of the small farmer leading an abundant life on a discarded scrap of land. I saw a man an old Cilician 
who occupied an acre or two of land that no one wanted. A patch not worth the plowing, unrewarding for flocks unfit for vineyards. He, however, by planting here and there among the scrub, cabbages or white lilies in verbena, and flimsy poppies, fancied himself a king. In wealth and coming home late in the evening, loaded his board with unbought delicacies. Barry tracks the folk tradition of this old squatter from ancient Rome to today. He neither has nor needs much land. His land is often marginal. He always associates frugality with abundance. Through his agrarian lens, Barry appraises the value of a small scrap of land by a reference to having no land at all. Agrarians know that to be landless is to be existentially lost. Consequently, the old subsistence farmer in Virgil's poem is both wise and happy to accept, quote, an acre or two of land that no one wanted, unquote. Quote, if you have no land, you have nothing, no food, no shelter, no warmth, no freedom, no life, unquote. Barry emphasizes that respect for limits is essential to agrarianism. So that's chapter, the, the first chapter. Our second chapter does a very different thing because it goes into environmental ethics issues and values in urban areas. Flint, Michigan in particular. This is a picture of the corroded pipes from Flint, Michigan. And I'm sure that many of you are, or maybe all of you have heard of this crisis in the, in the 2010s. Benjamin J. Pauley and Levi Tennant are the authors of this chapter. Levi Tennant is a philosopher like myself. Benjamin Pauley is uh, a sociologist by training and we, are, we were super excited to get him to contribute to this volume because he is like one of the experts on the Flint water crisis. He published a book with MIT Press uh, on the Flint water crisis. What do they talk about in this chapter? They talk about what does a just shrinking city look like? A lot of cities in the Midwest since around the World War II time have shrunk. And that's of course been very bad for lots of things like property values, right? Like tourism. And what they talk about in their chapter is how, is there any way to shrink in a just way? in a socially just way. Is that even possible? So they discuss what that might mean in this chapter. It's a really interesting chapter, a total 180 from the first chapter, which is very uh, mostly a rural conversation to an urban conversation. The third chapter does something different than the first chapter as well. The third chapter the Ethics of Women Water Warriors, hashtag no dapple, that's Dakota Access Pipeline, and an indigenous women's environmental ethic, authors uh, Matthew Meyer and Heather Ann Mo uh, Moody. This chapter looks at indigenous, you know, indigenous American issues like the building of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Probably most of you have heard about this. It's been a major, major uh, a controversial project. And this is a great picture 
uh, we can see this, this um, sign here that they've built that says, defend the sacred, defend the sacred. In this chapter, a really interesting and rich uh, theory, really, of an indigenous feminist ethic emerges and, and is contrasted with a Western feminist ethic. Those two things are not the same thing. And they, and they talk about differences between a Western feminist ethic and an indigenous feminist ethic. And they also couple that discussion with a, women, a woman's politics of resistance. So they spend a lot of time working through really taking this case study and building a theory out of it, which is just fascinating. It's one of the richest and longest chapters in the book, and we're, we're super excited that we were able to get these scholars um, uh, to contribute to our volume. The next chapter, sad picture here of hogs. Um, I think I want to say something like something like 70-ish percent, I'd have to do the math exactly, but something like 70-ish percent of hog farming in the United States is in the Midwest, in the Midwest. So it's a major issue here. Um, <clears throat> you can see the title, Wilbur on Drugs, right? Um, <laughs> from uh, the antimicrobial use in hog CAFOs, uh, Jam Dietierle and Wade Tornquist. Um, this is, of course, a picture of a, of a hog CAFO. They very uh, interestingly talk about different ways of dealing with illness in hog populations. And they talk about three different types of dealing with this. Um, one is through therapeutic antibiotics. That, that's when um, you go ahead and you just give antibiotics to the diseased individuals of that uh, group of hogs. You just give it to the diseased individuals. The next level is um, metaphylactic and antibiotic uh, uh, provision. And that's when you see some diseased animals in a group, and because there are diseased animals in the group, you just go ahead and give it to everybody. You go ahead and give it to all the hogs. Then there's prophylactic. And that's when there are no diseased animals, and that's when you just give it to them anyway. And this has enabled the, the hog industry to do this, prophylactic use of antimicrobials. And what they argue is that they argue that prophylactic antimicrobials should be banned, like legally prohibited. And they go through a really uh, nuanced argument about why that uh, should be the case. So that's, that's chapter four. Uh, or the, yeah. <clears throat> the fifth chapter, or actually we're skipping ahead because I'm gonna save mine for last. <laughs> the next chapter in our presentation uh, is about the Cuyahoga River. Um, I know everyone here is familiar with the Clean Water Act. The Clean Water Act started because of multiple, multiple fires on the Cuyahoga River. This is a picture of just one of them. The most famous one was in 1969. And what Joel McClellan does in this chapter is he talks about how a Deweyan 
pragmatism can be used to analyze this case. So pragmatism, what is, what is that? Pragmatism takes very seriously how important it is that we bring in <clears throat> the public's perception of issues when dealing with public policy. It also talks about this, con this, this tension between um, the experts and what they know and the technical know-how of dealing with issues and how a public is supposed to interact with that knowledge. How much of that are they supposed to get and so on. So he takes a Deweyan pragmatism and looks at the history of the Cuyahoga River from stagnant sludge to poster child of the Clean Water Act. As of this year, I'd have to look at it and, and see if it's happened yet, but the very last dam on the river is coming down this year, which is just a wonderful thing for those of us, you know, uh, who, who uh, think that there are problems with dams. <laughs> there are, of course, some good things about dams too, but it's, it, so a, a really interesting historical case study but also illuminates how Dewey and pragmatism as a philosophical kind of methodology can help us to understand such history. Ah, the river otter, I skipped. What Ohio can teach us about effective and ethical ecological restoration. This is another chapter on Ohio. Uh, by Justin Donhauser at Bowling Green State University. Here we see a river otter, and this chapter is about how we can reintroduce various species like the North American river otter in a way that's sustainable. When the North American river otter was first reintroduced, there was a major concern that the river otter would eat too many fish, and so people got really upset so the reintroduction of the river otter stalled and, and, and there was a problem there. And one of the things that uh, um, Don Hauser talks about is how important it is at the very beginning uh, to engage in public outreach and to educate people, because in fact the river otter wasn't decimating fish populations. Of course it was eating some fish, sure, but it wasn't decimating fish populations. Um, <clears throat> Our next chapter is, we gotta have one on climate change, right? That's, that's absolutely necessary. So the other editor, Matt Fricani, um, also contributes a chapter here, are the next generation science standards for weather and climate indoctrinating. So we have these standards that are national on science education and various states and their boards of education um, consider whether they are going to accept these standards. And according to one of the standards, right, there's, there's a, a foundational belief in the climate change stuff that one, there is climate change, and two, that humans are the main driver of it in the last 100 years. Critics of using the national climate standards have called this indoctrinating. When teachers uh, uh, teach these two beliefs in a science classroom, their concern is that we are indoctrinating the high schoolers to these two beliefs. 
So Matt Fricani engages in this wonderfully philosophically rich discussion of what is indoctrination anyway, philosophically speaking. What is that? What is indoctrination? And so then he develops an account of what it is, and then he argues that in fact, when science teachers are teaching about those two claims, they are not indoctrinating their students, even when they don't bring up the critic's viewpoint. So that's, that's a really interesting discussion in that chapter. We finally then lead to the final chapter, Prairie Dog Wars, the Philosophy of Biology and Justice Scalia. This is me, uh, well not these, not these guys, but the, the chapter is, <laughs> I, found, I found all these, I found so many photos on the internet of black-footed ferrets and prairie dogs and I found this one and this is perfect because this is a black-footed ferret chasing its primary prey, the prairie dog. Um, I want to make sure that we have time for questions. So I'm going to wrap up quickly here and not get into too much of my chapter. But I do want to say just a quick something about these critters. So the one on the left here, the black-footed ferret, is endangered. Um, it was refound in Wyoming after thought to be extinct, and it has now been reintroduced to Kansas. And 93% of its diet is the prairie dog. And of course, uh, the prairie dog has almost been uh, rendered extinct in the Midwest. This is a great case study for the Midwest because the prairie dog, its, it's, it's, it's historical range was mostly over the Midwest, some in the West, some in Mexico. And the black-footed ferret is endemic to the Midwest, it, meaning it, that's where it started. So my chapter is all about these critters and um, about a uh, Supreme Court case um, and about how Justice Scalia interpreted that case. So in that chapter, we, we learn a little bit about the, the Endangered Species Act, which says that any person subject to the jurisdiction of our country, uh, it is unlawful for that person to take any endangered species. What does that mean? To take means to harass, to harm, and that's what I focus on in this chapter, pursue, hunt, shoot, wound, kill, trap, and so on. And what is, uh, what is harming? It's any act that results in significant habitat modification or degradation where it actually kills or injures wildlife by significantly impairing essential behavioral patterns, including breeding, feeding, or sheltering. Here's the problem with respect to the prairie dog and the black-footed ferret. Um, the near extinction of the uh, prairie dog caused the near extinction of the black-footed ferret, given what I talked about earlier. And um, there's this law in Kansas which says that you basically have to get rid of prairie dogs, and if you don't, we'll come and make sure that you do. We'll, we'll come on your property and get rid of them for you. And so this led to prairie dogs basically being decimated in the state and therefore black-footed ferrets being decimated in the state. Well, along comes the Endangered Species Act and says, hold on a minute. 
the black-footed ferret feeds on the prairie dog and it uses its little towns that it burrows, that the, the, the prairie dog burrows, to shelter in. So guess what? You can't kill the prairie dog anymore because the black-footed ferret depends on it. So there's this guy in western Kansas, his name is Larry Haverfield, and he owns this ranch, I don't know how many thousands of acres, huge ranch, and he has basically rebuilt the ecosystem that we saw prior to European colonization on his land. He has bison, he has prairie dogs, he has black-footed ferrets, and he's allowed to keep all of that now because of the Endangered Species Act. All right, well, thank you for your time. <laughs> I don't know if we have time for questions, but... <laughs> I'm sure there are many. Yeah, so uh, any, any, does anybody have any questions about the, the volume or about um, what environmental ethics is about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very, very interesting. I'm inspired to read the book. Um, so what, what was the case with uh, Justice Scalia? Ah, yes, yes. Um, the case with Justice Scalia... Um, I'm forgetting, I'm blanking on the name right now of my own I'm, I'm assuming he doesn't like the Endangered Species Act. This is what's interesting. Babbitt versus Sweet Home, 1994. So, <clears throat> one of the main questions that this chapter brings up is do we harm individual non-human organisms or do we harm non-human species? when we impair breeding behaviors in our various human habitat expansion activities, Justice Scalia argues that we do not harm the individual. We can be said to harm the species or the population, but we do not harm the individual. So this question is related to the following broader question in, in our field whether it makes sense to say that we can harm populations or even species understood as bigger groups of populations. So that's what he argues. And then uh, Sandra Day O'Connor says no. Of course we can harm populations when we impact breeding behaviors of, of non-humans, but we also harm an individual organism. And that's really one of the foundation, one of, in, in, in my work and in, in other people's work in environmental ethics. Um, we want to think about, yeah, of course people can say, oh, we're harming populations or, oh, we're harming individuals, but we have to be able to make sense of that philosophically, logically. Like, can, can we actually be said to harm a species? Well, some of us talk like that but can we give an account of that, a philosophical account of that, that would be may potentially persuasive to people who don't believe that. So I actually, uh, here's where, uh, you know, this is strange for me as a, I'll just say it, I'm a liberal environmental philosopher. I actually argue for Scalia's position in this chapter, <laughs> which has kind of felt weird, but I, I go where the arguments take me, so. <laughs> so yeah, so, so maybe it's mm. worth pursuing that. So, I mean, that seems to be related to this sort of hyper-libertarian idea that there are only individuals. There is not 
a society or a population. And it, is that where you're coming from when you? That's, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, Scalia wants to say that, <clears throat> well, let's back up here. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor gives a nice little thought experiment. She's like, think about a piping plover. It's a kind of bird. Um, and, and think about if we were to take away its inability to breed. She thinks that that's an injury directly to that animal. Whereas Scalia believes that, no, that's not an injury to that animal. It doesn't take anything, it doesn't harm that animal directly. It can be said to harm the population because maybe if there aren't enough piping plovers around, then eventually there'll be an extinction of the piping plover. But Scalia believes that you can't, it can't be said to actually harm that individual piping plover. Uh, so that's kind of where the, the, the difference lies. Um, <clears throat> what I talk about in this chapter is I talk about cases like that and I also talk about cases where reproduction uh, is, 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 takes a lot of work and can be positively uh, bad for the individual. Think about salmon who perish after reproducing. Once they reproduce, uh, the, the, some, of, some species of them perish. Um, and there are other species for which once they reproduce, they perish as well. So I actually talk about cases where breeding is positively bad for the organism. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So anyway, that's, that's kind of fun to, to get into those legal matters. But what I found really interesting about this was that, wow, here's a case in the, you know, really technical legal stuff, but they are totally in, uh, in this Babbitt versus Sweet Home, um, linking up with a parallel issue in environmental ethics. So that's kind of what I ran with um, here in this chapter. Does that answer your question? I, I guess so. Yeah, or it sure. starts to get to it anyway. <laughs> This were more, yeah, more academic. I would get more. You you brought up an interesting uh, issue, which is the the overall conversation in our society right now between belief systems. Mm. And you know, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm I'm listening to your to your presentation, and I'm thinking how wonderfully woke this is, and what you know, <laughs> what what woke what woke means is thoughtful. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and the conversation around indoctrination is interesting to me because uh, the, I think the side that was arguing that it's not indoctrination is basing their argument on science, right? The, the, you can't argue with science, <laughs> you know, in the, in the long run, right? The, and the, and they, I think the argument about indoctrination, they're, they're coming from the position that, that science and liberalism is just another subjective choice in, instead of the outcome of science and the outcome of pragmatic human thought. Um, so just that, that was a thought that just sort of... Abs I, I would I'd love to comment on that. Thank you very much for your comment. Um, first of all, uh, the my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not an expert in this area, but my understanding is that the term woke was originally in a Dr. Martin Luther King speech. You have to look that up, but that's my understanding, which <laughs> if that's true, I mean, it's too bad that that, that, that term has just become uh, um, completely 
misused and 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 it's it's become like the well anyway I'm not an expert in that area so be careful there but <laughs> uh, it, it is too bad what has happened to that term because it's it's just it's, who even knows what it means anymore on both sides anyway anyway. Uh, now, with respect to um, what you said about science, the thing about those two claims, one, that climate change is here, and two, that humans are the main driver of it in the past 100 years, those claims come from science in the sense that there is a overwhelming consensus among the relevant experts that those claims are true. Could those claims be false? Sure, of course they could be, right? Science is, science is an evolving thing, right? But with respect to those two claims, there's an overwhelming consensus among the relevant experts that they are true. What are the relevant experts? The climate scientists, the climatologists. I mean, if you ask, uh, let's say, a sociologist about climate change, or even environmental, or even an environmental ethicist, you know. <laughs> um, we're not the relevant experts to ask. The relevant experts to ask are climatologists, and they're all telling us, a vast majority, 90 whatever percent, that these two claims are true. And so, you know, uh, any political person can say whatever they want, doesn't make what they say as true, <laughs> right? or false, it's, it's, it's and, and so yeah, I really appreciate your comment. Science and, um, th that is not to say that science doesn't change, of course it does, and that isn't to say that, that, that what we thought was true is now false. There was this thing called phlogiston back in the, I don't know, 18th century that they thought was this, this force, uh, and, and now, and, and every, every, most people believe there was this thing called phlogiston, now nobody believes in it in science. So, you know, we have to be careful there. I, I think what, what uh, the argument about climate science and the argument about racism have in common oh. is, is on one side you have arguments that are based on the pragmatic and empirical consideration of, of, of history and data. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I think that uh, we have a long way to go in ethical eating, which ties into the little piggies in Iowa, and the fact that as long as we can buy bananas in Douglas County cheaper than we can grow buy homegrown tomatoes, <laughs> there's no justice in this world. Um, but my point to you is, um, do you think that consumers would pay more to have ethically raised hogs? Uh, yeah, th that's that's a great question, and the authors of that chapter take up that very question at the end of their chapter. Um, the the the, the uh, folks over in Europe, the Danish folks, have actually went ahead and passed some laws that make it much more humane to uh, raise hogs, and it does cost more money. There's no question about that. Uh, and we would need to think about that. I mean, it, it does cost more money, so where do you put that cost? Does it get passed on to the consumer? Um, there's no question there would be a, a, a change there. Um, and the authors talk about 
first of all, you know, so you might worry, you might worry, legitimately worry about um, low, people with low income having access to protein sources. That's a real worry, right? And a real concern. But, so, so if this happens, they may not have access to pork products anymore. But the mistaken assumption there is that people must have access to protein meat sources. That's, that's, the science doesn't bear that out, right? I mean, uh, there are vegan professional cyclists who are amazing at what they do, and they win, you know, and they're vegans. So, I mean, that's, that's a anecdotal, but the, the actual science itself, when you look at the case studies and you look at, um, you look at the research, the academic peer-reviewed research, um, <clears throat> non-meat sources of protein can be just as good um, as, as meat sources. We have to be a little bit more intentional about how you eat as a vegan. I'm not a vegan, but I have a brother who is vegan. Um, but I'll tell you, he's very healthy, and I've met a lot of vegans who are. And yeah, it's, so it is really important for low-income people to have access to protein, absolutely. But it doesn't follow from that that they need to have access to meat protein. That's, that's how I would answer that. I'm not sure if the, chapter, the uh, authors of that chapter would answer it in that way, but that's how I would. Um, I, d I just had a comment about the prairie dogs. Um, I had no idea the prairie dogs were diminishing in Kansas. Um, but I guess they are, and uh, they certainly don't seem to be diminishing in um, Col eastern Colorado when we drive through there. Um, so I was just interested about that. The other, the other thing I wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned the rancher in uh, western Kansas who had started his own kind of back to nature with the uh, buffalo and the or, uh, bison and the prairie dogs and all that. What do you remember? What um, where that was? What town or what county in western Kansas? Yes, this is Logan County. My wife and I and and Gavin, whom some of you know, uh, we were traveling through that area uh, one spring, nice crisp crisp sunny morning in the spring and we stopped in Russell Springs and went to, I think it's called the Butterfield Museum. And we walked in and there was nobody in there at first and then uh, a woman came down the stairs, very tall, uh, very clear that she was a, a farmer, just you know, uh, in, the, in the way that, that, that she dressed and everything. And we started talking with her and she was one of the farmers that does use uh, pesticide on the prairie dogs that come over from Larry Haverfield's ranch. So we had this wonderful opportunity to talk to her about that. Um, <clears throat> it's literally, as you're driving down the highway there in Russell Springs, if you're going southwest, on the left side is Haverfield's ranch and you can see the prairie dog holes and then you'll occasionally see a prairie dog. And on the right-hand side is uh, where this, I can't remember her name right now, but where she had her more traditional ranch, she had horses there and cattle. 
and you will see a couple holes here and there. But she told me, she's like, oh yeah, absolutely. We poison them. They come on our property. They, 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 what they're concerned about is that the prairie dogs eat the vegetation. They're concerned about whether their um, uh, cattle and horses will step into those holes and maybe break their ankles. They're concerned about these things. So it's like, this was only a few years ago, and there's still major conflict there. So yeah, uh, the person who's asking that, yeah, that's on in Logan County, Russell Springs, specifically. Okay, thank you. If you, if you look on Google Maps, you, you can see on his side of the road, prairie dog homes, and on the other side, there's no prairie dog homes. A follow-up question on the protein question. Um, the alternative protein sources from uh, for the vegans, aren't those also more expensive? Yeah, and that's where I should have been more clear that, um, of course, we can have something in the middle, which is, of course, uh, the vegetarian diet, right? Um, and, and there, I am not a food ethicist, so I, that's, I'm, I have to say this is somewhere where my expertise uh, ends. Uh, but yes, vegan sources can certainly be expensive. Of course, it depends on if you're cooking yourself um, and whether you're going out. But there's also vegetarianism, um, which is another way of maybe bringing in some animal protein, but not meat protein, right? maybe bringing in some dairy protein without bringing in actual meat protein, right? You can be, of course, a vegetarian, uh, but vegetarians don't eat uh, pork, for example. So I should have mentioned that middle, that middle position. I, I think that the issue uh, is one of market forces uh, because it's much cheaper to take soybeans and grind them into soy milk than it is to feed them to cows and have the cows make the milk. And yet, traditionally, in the supermarkets in Lawrence, soy milk is about twice the cost of cow's milk, and it should be just the opposite. It's a problem of market forces and acceptance by consumers. But um, uh, I, uh, I think it would be wonderful if more people ate tofu and far fewer people ate bacon. Even though I had some for breakfast, I'll admit. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you. Sounds like there's a lot of interesting chapters. Is does the book have a moral or synopsis? Where does all where does all this lead? What you know? What's what's the big takeaway? Sorry. To, yeah, great. Whole starky question, but I'm curious. Yes, yes. Thank you for your question. There's no. Um, there's no policy directive or even um, value directive that comes across in the whole volume. What we really wanted to, the way that we, it came about is that we basically put out what you call a call for papers or a call for contributors in which we solicited from scholars from all over the country. And we said, this is what we want to do. We want to put together a volume that speaks to environmental, if, environmental ethics issues and values in the Midwest. Um, and so we got actually more submissions than uh, what made it into the book. We rejected some. 
So it wasn't, so what comes across is not some policy directive or some specific value directive, but what comes across is simply, or, or yeah, <clears throat> simply a focus on the region. And I mean, I, as, as I mentioned before, I'm from the, from the West, I'm from Colorado, I'm from, I'm from Aspen, Colorado, and you grow up and environmental issues and concerns are just out there, it's, it's like you grow up in it and it's amazing how people talk about it all the time. And then I moved to uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and there was even amongst um, many liberal groups, there was very little discussion of environmental issues. And then when I came here, same thing. I'm not saying that, that environmental issues aren't talked about amongst liberal groups here, but it's amazing to me in my own experience the difference and how much liberal groups talk about it in the American West versus here. So we were just like, hey, let's get people involved in a discussion here. Um, and let's, let's invite uh, people from all over and, and whoever sends us a good submission. And we have m multiply, we have different types of submissions here with different viewpoints. My chapter ends up being pretty conservative, strangely, because I argue uh, for Justice Scalia's view. And there are other chapters that are, of course, uh, of the other way. Um, and so really, that's what that's, that's was the focus, was the region. If that answers your question. There's no moral to the story, unfortunately. <laughs> but I had a question, and it just went away. Oh, sure. <laughs> Is there any final question out here? It's actually a comment. I just oh, want to sure. congratulate you on the, the profound achievement of becoming a full professor. Oh. <laughs> that, that's the commitment of a lifetime, and you should be congratulated. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I know what my question was. You do have a few books, right? Yes, yes. So um, if we want I think my mom was going to say something <laughs> okay. about that. And I, th I, I think mom had something she that. wanted to say, too. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> Yes, there are a few books in Founders Hall and muffins and goodies. And I also have a special award for my son. He doesn't know about this. <laughs> yes. And on behalf of the black-footed ferrets and the prairie dogs, this is a, a prairie dog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or on Gavin's bed, maybe. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, tell the folks up there goodbye, and you all may stay and talk for however long you well till five till you get to talk. And let's thank Ian and go upstairs and and have coffee and muffins. And that concludes Professor Ian Smith's presentation on environmental ethics. Thanks for listening, and tune in again next week when we will present Native Landscapes by Courtney Masterson of the Native Lands Restoration Collaborative. Here's a preview of that presentation.
Um, I get to hang out with wildflowers all day. Uh, I was in the woods um, in Baldwin providing education on woodland wildflowers and the forest floor and our native trees for the first half of yesterday. And that's pretty par for the course for me to get to spend my time in our native historic landscapes. Um, but also to create those spaces again with communities. Um, and my job's pretty easy. There are 2,000, not easy physically, but it's easy. <laughs> the materials are easy because there's over 2,000 species of plants native to the state. Um, I don't think any of them are ugly at all. Uh, they all just need to be the right plant in the right place. Um, and, and interpreting plants and introducing folks to plants is my job. So I, I get, to get to know the plants and the people that love those plants very well. Uh, there, if you simplify greatly, there are four main ecosystem types in Kansas. The prairies, and there's several types of prairie. Um, deciduous forest, again, several types of deciduous forest. And then the ecotone between forested spaces and grasses, or forested spaces and wetlands. And then, of course, wetland spaces. Um, all of those spaces, with the exception of deciduous forests in, in a new, a novel format, um, are threatened spaces. There's very, very little native cover left in the state. Um, and the reason that's an issue is because all of the wildlife, including the human wildlife, are dependent on those spaces for survival. So um, I, take, I get to take a lot of beautiful pictures when I'm out in the field. Um, but all, all of the animals that we love are dependent in some way on the native vegetation of our state. Um, so if I, if I love the butterflies, I have to plant what they need. If I love the deer, I have to plant what they eat. Um, even tree frogs, as crazy as that sounds, if I, if I love tree frogs, I plant the plants that attract the insects that feed the tree frogs. So it's all connected. And I know that this congregation knows that very well. Native plants provide just about everything that we need to survive. Um, if you think 200 years into the past and then the 10,000 years before that, the, the humans in this space relied entirely on the native plant systems for survival, for food, medicine, fiber, shelter, everything that you can think of. Um, and so for, for that space to be reduced to just a couple of percents of its original cover means that we've lost that connection. Um, there's a lot of things we don't think about when we think about native plants like water quality, soil quality, food sustainability, but those are also provided by our native landscapes. We've just forgotten um, how those plants function in their systems, but also how to eat those plants, how to use those plants, um, have a relationship with those plants that's medicinal or healthy or nurturing to our hearts, to our souls. Um, so that's a big part of what I do as well. And I usually start my relationship with people who aren't native landscaping yet, aren't uh, doing restoration work yet, um, with assessing where they live, uh, asking them about their ecosystem. Perhaps they desire to go uh, towards the historic native landscape, and that might mean a big change. Um, or we want to keep elements of their landscape and start something new, a novel ecosystem, which is sort of what we're doing outside the building here. Um, the hedge wouldn't have been here. The Bradford pears wouldn't have been here. Um, those are all human added 
um, organisms. So instead of building prairie there, we're getting a glimpse into the prairie. We're working sort of at the woodland edge. And that was not what would have been right here in this spot historically. So we create a new landscape that's still native, but that we get to have some creative input into. Um, the tall grass prairie would have covered over 90% of Douglas County. Um, and it was a prairie, or it was an ecosystem that was completely dependent on disturbance. So that was often human disturbance. So the tribes that were here certainly burned for a lot of reasons. Um, the tribes that are still here, I apologize. Um, but there was large grazers like bison here. Um, there were lots of other organisms interacting with this. Uh, today, disturbance in the prairie looks like sometimes burning. We're trying to do a lot more burning for folks here. Um, also haying um, or grazing with cattle. And if you're really lucky or really special, grazing with bison again, um, though it's very different than what the historic bison grazing would have looked like. Prairie covered over 150 million, close to 200 million acres in North America. Um, that's really hard to even visualize. So Kanza is just a couple thousand acres. Uh, and a lot of us think to Kanza or the Tallgrass Prairie Preserve as um, intact ecosystems, as a space where you can kind of get a glimpse into the past. And in a way, you can. Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. Now stay tuned for your jazz in the afternoon with the Jazz Doc followed by the Thursday Afternoon Blues Show at 3 p.m., followed by the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m., all right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Have a great day.